This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Welcome to another episode of Ask Isaac. This one is going to be kind of a grab bag. I'm going to see if I can hit rapid fire a handful of questions. Again, these were all questions posted on Facebook um, when I put an open call for any kind of questions whatsoever to, uh, to answer in the Ask Isaac segment. Okay, so let's jump right in. First question is from Salton Rice. Is all action inherently optimistic? That is a really cool question, and I've I never thought about that before. So I guess it depends on our definition of optimistic. In a sense, all action is inherently optimistic because a precondition for action is the belief that that action will in fact bring about the desired result. So to take action, and this comes right right from Mises, he has sort of three preconditions for action. One is uh, dissatisfaction with the present state, a vision of something better, and a belief in an ability to get there. And that's what leads you to action. I'm uncomfortable on this chair. That couch looks nicer. I believe if I get up and walk over there, my situation will improve. So taking action implies, as a precondition, that you believe that action will improve your situation in some way. So in that sense, it's optimistic. You, you believe that you're going to get better be better off. Um, However, it depends on what you're comparing better off to. What if you believe that a uh, meteor is about to strike right where you're standing and destroy your home and everything in it, and so you take action to move out of your home and suffer less damage? Your, Your action may actually be based on a pessimistic worldview. I think my house is about to explode into flames, so I'm going to take action to avoid it. So so to call that an inherently optimistic action, I, I don't know if I would say that. It may be pessimistic, right? Or like, you know, hoarding a bunch of uh, gold or cash because you think the economy is going to collapse. You act because you're a pessimist. However, your action itself reveals that you believe you are able to Uh, suffer less than you otherwise would. So there's some sort of optimism in it. Good question. Michael Hogan, regarding startups, how do you balance your self-assurance in your product against listening to your customers and not just selling something you want? Um, You know, here's the great thing. You'll not be able to just sell whatever you want forever uh, unless you have tons of money and, and or a product that costs almost nothing to produce and sell. So to me, it's not about some sort of cash line where you say, okay, now it's time to cut the cord um, or, you know, now it's time to change what we're doing and sell customers what they want uh, because we're not making money doing it this way. It's more about what you're willing to tolerate, right? So, I mean, if you went into business and your only goal was I'm going to sell something that people will buy, um, there may be some people who are good at that and can do that, but I don't think hardly anybody is. Most people are, I have a belief about a product or an idea that I want to bring into being. I have a hunch that it's valuable. Other people might not know it's valuable, right? Henry Ford's thing. If I asked people what they want, they would have said they wanted a faster horse. I've got a vision of something new and people don't even know they want it yet because it meets a known need in an unknown way. Um, so 
it's hard to get people to see that value and maybe they're not buying it. And, and how much do you take feedback from them and just adapt your product into whatever people already want and how much do you build what you want to build? I think you go as far as you can. I mean, if you've got the ability and you, and you, as long as you love doing it and you still believe in it and you're passionate about it, if you still believe in your new, you know, widget, uh, that allows you to, you know, talk on the cell phone without holding a cell phone and nobody wants it, nobody's buying it, but you're like, they will, if they only see it rather than adapting and turning it into what they already want, I say, go as long as you can go both financially and just in terms of enjoyment, uh, take it as far as you can take it. And, um, once it starts sucking and you don't like it anymore, or it's costing you too much financially or otherwise, um, fine, that's where you make the cut. But I don't think you make it based on some certain level of consumer input. Go after your vision, not just asking a poll for what other people already want. Tell them, show them something new. Um, Related to that, Michael Hogan asks a second question. Where do you draw the line between failing and giving up? Um, I would say maybe two things. One is you got to know your own pain tolerance. So are you failing at something and therefore you need to just fail fast and abandon it and move to something else? Or would leaving mean that you're giving up? You know, one, one is the pain tolerance. I mean, how painful is it and can you handle it? Is the, is the failure that you're going through so painful and awful? Like, then just get the hell out of there. Get away from it. It's just don't keep pursuing it if it's killing you. But the second one is, can you see it working in theory if you push through? So there's this idea that, you know, never giving up, being persistent is so valuable in and of itself, no matter what you're persisting in, that you should just always do it. And like, yeah, I stayed the course. Well, like, yeah, you stayed the course and drove off a cliff. That's stupid, right? There's nothing good about persisting through something that's not working. And a lot of people, they suffer needlessly. Well, I'm in a situation that sucks. I hate it. I mean, I talk to college students like this. It's awful. I hate college, whatever. But I don't want to be a quitter. Well, like, where do you see it getting you? No idea. Do you see it leading you to a goal down the road? Nope. Do you have any theory in which finishing it will get you something far greater than if you quit? Nope. No clue. I just hope it does. Well, that's stupid then, right? So if, if you're suffering and you're like, I don't want to be a quitter, um, you know, one, if the, the pain is too high, um, then, then walk away and just say, hey, it was a failure. Oh, well. But two, and I think more importantly, if there's no possible world, if you can see, hey, this suffering is awful, I don't know how much I can take, but I know that if I can get through, there's, I have a theory about how this will work. Um, if you still believe in that theory, that's when it becomes perseverance, not just suffering for its own sake. Uh, Nicole Lowe asks, do you believe aging is a disease? I guess I'm not enough of a you know, medical expert to, to know the definition of a disease. So I don't know if I'd call it a disease, but I do think aging can be severely curbed if not cured. I think that that is um, possible. Whether the physical body can, uh, the, the, the aging of cells can be slowed down or new cell replication can be speeded up, um, sped up, or whether the, the brain and consciousness can somehow be uploaded or the body can be continually you know, augmented with um, you know, synthetic materials and things like that so that we live for hundreds of years, if not more. I think that that stuff is all possible. And uh, in fact, the direction humanity is going. Carl Oberg asks, under what circumstances would you go back to working for someone? Um, To me, it's not really about working for someone or not working for someone. I love autonomy. I love freedom. And I love to create things and build things. If I can do those uh, owning my own company, if I can do those working with somebody else, their company, as an employee, as a partner, as whatever it might be, um, doing something that I love where I have a lot of autonomy, a lot of freedom to, to experiment and 
where I'm building things and creating things. That's what makes me happy. And so anytime I see the best way to combine those things, um, and obviously, you know, with a, with a, a good financial return as well, um, I'm open to it at any time. Right now, it's working for myself. So that's what I'm doing. Danny Benavidez asks, what is the most underrated innovation right now? Yes, I know it gets a lot of press and a lot of buzz, but I still say the blockchain um, upon which Bitcoin is built. I think the blockchain is as big a deal as the internet. Um, I know that might sound cheesy and crazy. Go read the book, What's the Big Deal About Bitcoin by Steve Patterson, and uh, you might agree with me. Matthew Dodson asks, where do you feel outside of the U.S. there's the most opportunity for entrepreneurs? I got to say, I have no idea on this one. I'm just not enough of a seasoned traveler or someone who studies these sort of global trends. Um, I do know there are a lot of opportunities in a lot of places, and I know that a lot of places have very low cost of living and very low expenses relative to the U.S. and Western Europe. Um, so if you're young and you know you don't have a lot of money, but you've got an idea, um, starting it in, you know, Panama, Ecuador, I don't know, um, might be a great thing worth looking into, but I really don't know. I don't have a, a clear answer to that. Hopefully you can go find the answer to that, Matthew, and then you can come and tell me. Cameron Soresby. Ah, Cameron, my coworker at Praxis. As a founder of a company, how do you manage your time between creative and maintenance work? Okay, this one's just for me personally, but my goal is just to constantly increase the amount of creative work I can do and decrease the amount of maintenance work. The least amount of maintenance work I can do, uh, the better for me and the more creative work. So any way I can create systems and processes that are self-managing or um, simplify things in a way that people, other people can do them. I love to build things and then to manage them like once for like one cycle, ideally, that it usually takes more than that. And then make it into a process that can be handed off and replicated to somebody who can manage it far better than I ever could. So my goal is always, always to do less, less maintenance as little as possible. Um, final question that I'm going to answer today. Matt Needham asks, what is your favorite story to tell? So this is a story that I take from a little uh, documentary called The Call of the Entrepreneur produced by the Acton Institute. It's an amazing story, and I'm going to give the really shortened version, but it, it brings me to tears every time I watch this story. There's a, a gentleman who was who grew up in communist China, and he had never seen the outside world. He didn't know anything about it, and um, just assumed that communist China was good, was, you know, everything that they told him it was in school, and that the rest of the world was a terrible place. And he was working at the train station as his sort of assigned role, and someone from Hong Kong came, and he carried their luggage, and the guy gave him a piece of chocolate. And he didn't know what chocolate was. He'd never seen it before, never heard of it, never tasted it. And he took a bite of that chocolate. And he said, I didn't know anything else about Hong Kong or anything about the rest of the world. All I knew is wherever this came from, I need to go there. If they can produce this, I need to go there. He smuggled himself out uh, with some help when he was, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, something like that, into Hong Kong. Um, has gone on to be a... a ridiculously successful media mogul. But the power of that story for me, it just it just gives me chills every time, is that you don't need to just argue and convince people into things. You don't need to just go into communist China and give them an economics textbook and explain to them and get them to intellectually agree with you that free markets are preferable to socialism. 
That's valuable, but only a very small percentage of people are ever going to be won over by arguments. It's necessary. It's powerful, those ideas. But experiences are equally, if not more, powerful. Once someone has tasted literally the fruits of freedom, they will want it. They will yearn for it. Once someone has lived free, they will be offended by the idea of tyranny, whether or not they ever understand intellectually concepts like rights or the economics of freedom versus socialism. Creating experiences in freedom can literally change lives. That's why I love that story. Thanks so much for all the questions. I will be doing, um, I think I'll be doing a few more of these. This has been a, a fun experiment. So thanks again for listening to Ask Isaac. Isaac.